sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You like, I did that kind of like Casey Casey. That was really good. I, I, we're I, coming up to our bedtime story. I, I'm, I'm glad you you got that sort of gusto, too, because I want to go on a little like field trip, like a mental field trip. You and I will stay where we're at, but... If you're up for it, let's. I mean, this is different. This is not how we normally start the show. But hey, first, tell me, have you ever been to Long Beach, California? Oh yeah, you have. Oh, did you ever? Did you ever have? Oh, what a stupid question! Did you ever have the Iron Maiden Live After Death record that came out in '86? Because I, I regret to inform you that I did not own that. You realize a couple songs into it, that's where it's from. Because Bruce Dickinson's like, "Scream for me, Long Beach." Oh my god, Scream. dude! And when I got there, like I went to Long Beach, I was like, "Oh man, this is like, this is Long Beach." It was so exciting, <laughs> and I didn't know what it meant. There was something that felt cool about being in Long Beach, this is but so I didn't understand. Essential, you man. Uh, well, it's funny that you say that though, because I'll be honest, I've I've not, and I, you know, I don't want to misrepresent myself for anyone who lives there currently that might be listening or has lived there before. But like many things in this world, I like you have learned about it from pop culture. So it wasn't Iron Maiden for me, but it was it was Snoop Dogg. I mean, that's how I learned, of course, as a white boy at a young age that it should be referred yeah. to as the LBC. Right, it's got a it's got a great name. It, it really it really does. And so this is where I thought we'd start. We'd start here today. And in order to do that, I I needed to know about the good and the bad and the ugly of the LBC because all towns have their trash, right? <laughs> so so I had to do a little research. If you go all the way back to 1897, it's incorporated as a city, and that city has always excelled, especially. And one particular area being a resort town. Yeah, baby. The reputation as a resort town really starts all the way back in the early 1900s with this place called The Pike. This thing gets built in 1902, and it, it lasts until 1979. For a big chunk of its existence, it's the most famous beachside amusement zone on the West Coast. And it, it starts simple. It's just like people bathing in water. But over the length of its existence, The Pike will get a Skywheel dual Ferris wheel. And yeah. they get a cyclone racer roller coaster, but I, oh wow, that I mean, sounds cool like a cyclone. It, it it doesn't take either of us watching either season of The White Lotus on HBO to know that resort towns have have an underbelly. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you want to tell the story about Elmer? Do I want to tell the story about Elmer? Good God, <laughs> sure I do. All right, hang on to your handbags, everybody. <laughs> So in the late 70s, they have this ride at the Pike called Laugh in the Dark, yes. L-A-F-F. This is <laughs> you know it's, you know it's going to be good because yeah. it, they spell it L-A-F-F. It goes side to side in the dark, and then there's like skeletons that do jump scares. At you. It's real stupid, right? <laughs> but it's so well known, well known that the producers of the $6 million man want to shoot a sequence, this freaking ride for the show. <laughs> The idea is they're going to shoot a scene where Steve Austin is riding the ride. So they go into the ride to get it ready for shooting. And one of the poor guys working on the show notices that they have a mannequin hanging in a corner and it's going to be shot or something. So he goes to mess with it. He grabs the arm 
and it comes off. It's not a prop. No, no. it's not. <laughs> that is a guy named Elmer McCurdy. First of all, and just everybody, just I don't know, prepare to freak out. This his, is so weird. His name is Elmer McCurdy. It couldn't be better. Like his name could have been Mark or Brian or no, it's Elmer. The story of how Elmer gets there is even more ridiculous than the story of how he's discovered. Supposedly, he was in a gunfight with police. Catch the geography in the year. 1911 in Kansas. His body gets taken to this funeral home in Kansas, but nobody claims it. So, I guess it's hard times. And the funeral director is innovative, and he gets this idea. He knows people really dig morbid stuff, even though they won't admit it to themselves. So, he decides that he's going to take this dead body... (laughs) and embalm it and essentially make it like a freak show item where you can stop by the funeral home and put a nickel in the dead guy's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and and when, I, when I heard this, do you know what story from your past I thought of immediately? Come and touch the dead lady. <laughs> exactly. You heard it. Me, me as a kid with the, with the thing. Yeah. So you put a nickel uh. in Elmer's mouth and then that's how you're like, it's like the fountain at the mall. <laughs> But instead, it's a really old dead guy, so, and you're just putting money in his face. Did the, I want to know how did they get the money out of Elmer's face? So everything, to- everything I heard about this just stops at the description that they dropped the nickels in his mouth, and I had the same question, and I told this story to my family. Around dinner the other night, everyone was thrilled that I was telling this story over <laughs> tacos or whatever eating. And I never get this far telling, like, hey, everybody, you want to hear this story about a di-? Like, no. Listen, I didn't even get near this. I bribed them all. No, I bribed them all. They wanted something out of me, and I was like, I will. I don't even remember what it was. And I was like, I will do that. But first, you have to sit through this story and act like you're interested. <laughs> that That's actually what I said. So I told them this story, and they asked the same question. How did, what, what in the world? How do you, you drop the nickels in the guy's mouth, and then what happens? Anyway, it gets wackier. Like, five years into doing this fucked up shit, a carny is, like, losing business, I guess. Because he hears, you know, like, he's rolling through towns in this area. And he hears this lore that there's this guy who has this dead body where he can go drop a nickel in it. And so he, he and, and people are nuts about it. And he's made a bunch of money. And that's the that's the rumor. So he shows up at the funeral home and pretends to be a relative of the guy. And he's like, oh, can I please have the body back? So I can, I'm not even mad, but can I have it so I can properly bury it? But he just takes it and puts it in his own carnival. And basically, for 60 years, this dead body gets passed around carnivals and wax museums. And then, with no explanation, it ends up at the pike. And it's discovered by the crew on the $6 million man. This is an American touchstone point that has not been talked about enough. Come touch the dead lady. It's so freaking weird. It is amazing that this like Graham Parsons weird thing, stealing the dead body thing, becomes like commerce. Oh, right. in an amusement park. Now, is it coincidental that the amusement park then gets shut down like two years later? Probably not. But why am I telling you this story? I, I, here's why. Here's why I'm starting an episode about rock and roll with the story of Elmer McCurdy. And it's because it weirdly feels to me like the perfect way to introduce Long Beach for our purposes today. Let's, let's read the letter. Here's the letter. Guys, I know there are amazing stories that surround the band Sublime, and moreover, their frontman Bradley Noel. 
Uh, legend surrounds this band, including some drama around trashing Willie Nelson's property. Let's dive deep down the rabbit hole. Thanks, and keep telling stories. Three exclamation points because he's a bro. Jeff. Thanks so much, Jeff. And I will say Sublime is kind of the rock band equivalent of that fucking story. <laughs> and if you were in a Sublime cover band, you would definitely have to practice sanctuary. Yeah, I saw that tweet too. Uh, so, you know, it, it really is. That story really is sort of literally the uh, way to think about Long Beach. At, so because you and I think about it, right, it's tropical and alluring because it's foreign to us. We don't get to go there that often. We see in our mind's eye the top of the boardwalk. But Sublime, they lived there. And they weren't uncomfortable claiming the corpse in the funhouse when it came to their hometown. Here, here's an example of what I mean. I found this on a message board about the band. It was left in 2021 by a guy named Miles. I've lived in the LBC... I've lived in Garden Grove and in Los Angeles. If you've ever lived in the seedy underbelly of where Sublime is from, you would encounter the things that Sublime sings about. I'm in my 40s and I still love them. Garden Grove is my favorite song. It's, it is very good. And Jim Weiss wrote a piece for The Ringer a couple of years back to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the major label record. And he described the synergy between the band and the city this way, which is pretty interesting for nerdy types like us. Quote, pockets of wealth exist in Long Beach, but it's historically a blue-collar poor city. It's to L.A. what Oakland is to San Francisco. It's where Sublime created their own form of Southern California fusion with a lead singer who could croon alcoholic symphonies punctuated by lewd, easy-e come-ons, then switch to serenades in fluent Spanish. Iconoclast who gracefully avoided the trappings of white boy reggae. He could write pop hits of a Gershwin flip, and then have them remixed by Snoop in the far side. That was Sublime, and that was the LBC Long Beach. Wait, what's your relationship with Sublime, personally? I don't know if we've ever had this conversation. I think that I listened to them because girls did, Brian. I'm going to just go there and just say that. I don't think that I ever was deeply into there. And then, and then you know, you end up spending a lot of time with a band, and you know a little bit more about them. Well, it's interesting you say that because I pulled out the self-titled, the the really famous record that we will get to in this story. And I put it on and I was like, oh, I think I know like three or four songs off this record. And Murdoch, I knew every single word to every single song on that record. And I realized that there was just a period of my life where it was on all the time. And so, you know, our age gap puts you already through college at the time yeah. that that record comes out you know I had a long life you know by by the time I was in college in 2001 it was still a very relatively new and relatively respected record that was on all the time and it is just a really interesting thing where it's like in some ways it sounds like everything and also, it's totally singular. Eric Wilson and Bud Gall, they're pals from an early age. Um, then they meet Bradley later. And anyone knows anything about this band probably knows something about Brad, right? Yeah, I mean, he struggles with what sounds like ADHD. Maybe not diagnosed, but his mother's been quoted saying things like he was always looking to see what he could get away with. You know, it's just like all kids. But she had so much trouble with him that his parents get divorced when he's fairly young and she gets custody 
and then relinquishes it and gives him back to his father. So he ends up being raised by his dad. Yeah, which is devastating, all of this. So it all becomes part of this story for us because his dad is in construction and ends up needing to go on this month-long sailing trip to the Virgin Islands, as you would. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he has custody of this kid, so 11-year-old Brad goes with him, and this changes his life. Yeah, because this is where he hears ska and reggae music for the first time. Right. And he meets Eric and Bud, and those guys are busy playing really bad punk rock. (laughs) Brad insists that there's something else that they should be checking out instead. I'm condensing this quote here. You're going to love this, but it's from a 2021 Rolling Stone interview with bassist Eric Wilson. He says, Brad had gone to the Caribbean with his dad and heard reggae for the first time and then came back here all stoked about it. I was listening to Bob Marley and stuff, but I wasn't feeling it at first. But then I heard Bad Brains. And then we went to go see Fishbone play a free gig. Oh my gosh, I get to talk about Fishbone. This is never supposed to happen ever in my entire life. I can't believe this is totally happening right now. Let me, let me just okay. say for the record, before this uh, this episode was in production, within the last two or three weeks, Murdoch, I have received texts from you about Fishbone. This is a regular thing. Yes, and they're opening up for P-Funk like, yeah. real soon. And I need to make a decision whether I want to go see a band that I saw 30 years ago. I know. You know, my dad's thing on that is if he saw him 30 years ago, he won't go see them now. I don't necessarily stand by that rule, but I do find it an interesting thing. Ask your, one thing to ask your dad, Metallica. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he didn't see him 30 years ago. So Yeah. Okay. So I saw Fishbone in play, like places that like had 500 people in them. And the sheer intensity of the band, just how fabulously funky they were and how much fun it was to watch them and how much fun it was to dance and how much like how sexy it was to me it really did make me feel that at the time until rick rubin really got a hold of them like i thought the chili peppers were like totally freaking over like overrated you you would say fishbone was eventually eventually well eventually i think the chili peppers started writing songs and sometimes a little bit the kind of the same songs right right they wrote songs that were they they figured out how to write hit songs and fishbone wasn't really writing hit songs they never really were watching the bands fishbone just seems to be so much better the way you describe them is the way that eric wilson describes them and he i mean he says quote that was my first introduction to seeing anything that was like scott and these guys were in the air more than they were on the ground they would throw their horns up throw them to their roadies they were absolutely incredible we went home right away by the next day or so we wrote date rape and then we wrote a lot of songs off that first album yeah so for anyone who's trying to get musically to connect the dots and figure out how to put this all together. Who is Sublime and what made them the band they are? There is another big musical touchstone we're talking about. You've got Bad Brains, uh-huh. you've got Fishbone, Fair enough. and you've got the Butthole Surfers. <laughs> okay, so the love of the Butthole Surfers will define Sublime. 
in literal and practical ways. Uh, the landmark self-titled album that we keep alluding to, uh, it is produced by the lead guitarist from that band, Paul Leary. And we're going to talk a lot about Paul Leary later. But that was a purposeful choice by the band. They wanted him involved because of his pedigree. Here's the thing about the the butthole surfers for me that I learned about that I thought was really interesting, which I, I think I watched a Flaming Lips documentary, but they, they had Gibby Haynes from the butthole surfers in there and they had footage and it was like, oh, butthole surfers were kind of doing this Flaming Lips thing before the Flaming Lips were yeah. doing the Flaming yeah. Lips thing. Like setting things on fire, like setting their symbols on fire while they're on stage and... I mean, we're, we're going to have to do a Butthole Surfers full episode at some point, because if I was asked to pick the craziest story I've ever heard about band drama, it on it would be the onstage meltdown story that's in our band could be your life. Yeah, an interesting side note about this association is the timing, right? Yeah, the key mainstream album for both of those bands comes out, they come out within a few months of each other. Electric Larry Land is the name of that. Yeah. And that's really the... That has, I think, Peppers on or whatever. That's mm-hmm. the closest the band ever gets to the really big time, you know. So the the working with Paul thing is what does ultimately connect them with the Willie Nelson part of this story that Jeff alluded to in his letter. But before we get there, let's get back to that quote where Eric Wilson describes what happens after the Fishbone concert. He literally says, "We went home and we wrote date rape." That's when things got out of control. She didn't want to. He had his way. She said, "Let's go." He said, "No." You got anything to say about the song Date Rape? Can I pass? <laughs> they feel the same way. You know the band does not like that song. They try to not put it on the record. But it's a song that breaks them eventually. And it's it's a great example of the boardwalk analogy I was using. The above the boardwalk, below the boardwalk, right? And their their image. How they were not afraid to sort of fully embrace the seedy underbelly of things that were happening. But it was all... That was the lyrical part of it. The musical part of it was sunshine and fun at the beach. Like, that song is third wave ska, full bop along sunshine, and the lyrics are not. And they're also, let's just say it, problematic and homophobic by the end. Another great example of this, though, is the duet that's a sort of a reworking slash cover that they do with another local scene singer, somebody who they came up with named Gwen Stefani. Uh, Saw Red. I don't know if you know this song, but it, it is vacation energy like walking on sunshine but it centers around dysfunctional relationships and the line saw red i saw red one more secret lover that i shot dead so the lore around how they record their first few pieces of output really does serve to inform this story when they when we get to the willie nelson part of the story but it does mean that we have to talk about miguel you want to introduce miguel yeah, his name's Michael Miguel Happolt. Is that yeah. how you say his last name? And he's widely considered to be like the the fourth member. If you ask band. him, he is the fourth member of the band. He actually claims that he opted not to sign the major label record deal because he thought it was a bad idea. Like literally asked to have his name removed from it. But he's long been considered part of their crew. Yeah, and before all that, he started as a rock and roll dude in the 80s. He loved Discord Records and SST, and he was in this band called the Ziggins and he wanted to go DIY and create a label to put their music out on, obviously influenced by what was going on with, with those other bands and those other labels. So he creates skunk records. And then one night he's at a party and he meets Bradley Noel. 
This is a quote that I found from Miguel. I just wanted to make our Ziggins cassette that we released look fancy. But when I met Brad, I handed him the tape and he's like, what's this skunk records thing about? And I told him, listen, man, I just bullshit people. It's bullshit. It's really just me. So he goes, cool. I guess Sublime's going to be on skunk records too. Fuck it. And we were pretty much buddies since then. When Brad was still alive, he'd say, Mike started Skunk Records, but it didn't mean shit until he met Sublime. And I'd back that up because it's true. Sublime will use the Skunk Records thing as a way to book themselves. Oh, yeah. So people are skeptical of them and their style early on. So they just say, say, Skunk Records recording artist. And then people take them seriously because that's what people do. There was a time where that worked. Uh, Another important aspect of this whole part of the story has to do with the setting, right? So Miguel is not just partying with band dudes. He met the band, the Ziggins, because he was a recording engineer student at Cal State, Dominguez Hills. At the end of each semester, he's supposed to turn in one song he recorded, and he just turns in albums. I, I read something that said that they weren't very good, that he kept getting marked down for like how he mixed the bass and stuff. But this all becomes part of the lore, because Sublime will make their very first recorded output in the university studio that's meant for class projects, which means they have to sneak in and do it between midnight and seven. And this will become a cassette called Ja Won't Pay the Bills. But it's important to emphasize that the live show comes first with this band. There's a quote I saw speaking of that from Miguel where, and this is from like the last few years, and the interviewer is asking him about young bands and producing young bands and all that sort of stuff. And he and specifically says something about when should a band put something onto record. And this is his response. He says, it's just the cart before the horse. Someone comes up to me and they hand me a CD and there's 22 fucking songs on there and I've never heard of them before. What are the odds that one of those songs is any good, let alone 22? Sublime was packing fucking houses every fucking time. We had nothing. We had a five-song tape. By the time we made a CD, people couldn't wait to get that motherfucker. Yeah, so to that point, the first Sublime live show is 4th of July, 88. Mm-hmm. Ja Won't Pay the Bills doesn't even happen until 91. So they mostly focused on being a party band. The band becomes known for two things before they even have a record. They become known for the live show. And then, and I, I guess this also becomes part of the live show too, but they become known for their dog. I love my dog. Wow, wow. And I love, I love my dog. Louie, or Blue Dog, as he's often called, he's named after Brad's grandpa, and he basically becomes the band's mascot, and how cute is this shit? They let him loose on stage during the show. If you know much of anything about Sublime, you've probably seen pictures of this dog, because he's in album art, he's in photo spreads, he's in videos, it's a whole thing. But So it's these live shows and this doggy and then this illicitly recorded demo tape, they're all going to combine to help Sublime start gathering a pretty intense grassroots following around Southern California. And by 92, they're ready to record more of these songs that are getting yelled at at their live shows since they've been crafting it for, you know, three years, three or four years now. You know, if recording on a university's equipment worked the first time, well, why not try it again? So they go to California State. 
And here is an old quote from Brad. Quote, you weren't supposed to be in there after 9 p.m., but we'd go in at 9.30 and stay until 5 in the morning. We'd just hide from the security guards. They never knew we were in there. We managed to get $30,000 worth of studio time for free. This is the album that becomes 40 Ounces to Freedom. And the one I'm definitely familiar with, for sure. It's important to point out, 23 tracks... Six of them are covers. And the record starts with a Minutemen sample and includes covers of Bad Religion, The Descendants, and The Grateful Dead. And there is a song about KRS-One. And there is a song called Day Rape. Right. And April 22nd, 1995, the LA Times runs a piece, Date Rape, the song stirs much debate. It's a nice historical document. So this is what they do. They talk to feminist groups. They talked to Dr. Drew Pinsky. <laughs> There's a quote from Brad from the band with a typical for him sort of response, acting like he didn't really think about what he was singing. Uh, I'm, not, I'm just not a deep guy, man. Uh, I also read a quote elsewhere where he said he was like at a party and some guy said, if it wasn't for date rape, I'd never get laid. And like everybody was like, oh, dude, that's rough. And he said, I thought it was funny. I laughed at it because that's my subversive sense of humor. Uh, If you want to dig deeper on the cultural conversation around this song, you can do that with this academic article I put in the show notes written by Elizabeth K. Keenan. It's called Asking For It, Rape, Post-Feminism, and Alternative Music in the 90s. And it opens with the anecdote that this song will get sneaked into K-Rock in L.A. and the request lines will go crazy for it. It's never really meant to be on the radio in any official way. Yeah, it breaks some. It's totally weird. This is the song. So now the song is becoming big regionally they're out of california not too far from the music business in la and some people are paying attention one of these people is a guy named john phillips he works for his uncle at an mca subsidiary called gasoline alley records and he keeps keeps telling the bosses about sublime he keeps playing them 40 ounces to freedom and saying they should sign them, but no one is listening to him. John Phillips tells this story, in fact, that when Sublime starts working on new material, which is what will become Robin the Hood, which we'll talk about, he will he will bring the band to the label for a meeting, thinking he can get them in with everyone that makes decisions, but they get put off all day. The guys are in, in the offices with the dog, with an entourage, but the meeting never happens. And they get pissed, and they're there for hours. And finally, he tells them, listen, I don't think this is going to happen. So when they're leaving, they walk by a parking space reserved for the label head, who happens to be John Phillips' uncle, who drives like this fancy vintage car. And, and they would made these sublime stickers, and they just slap one across the custom paint job on the car and walk out. I mean, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly, right? (laughs) I mean, it legit keeps them from getting signed for close to another year, according to John Phillips. Like, he had to talk everyone down and then wait until it was pretty undeniable for Sublime to be welcomed back to Gasoline Alley. But they will eventually uh, get a record deal there. And, And in keeping with their offbeat maneuvering, they don't hand over an album that sounds like 40 Ounces to Freedom too. They had to hand over Robin the Hood, right? This next record. Which is it's not barely an album. It's so weird. And in the background of this whole thing, Date Rape, which is now four years old at this point, is starting to get radio airplay 
everywhere across the U.S. They're getting famous for a single from 1991. The, the timing is always off for, with Sublime. They're, the old material is blowing up while they're working on something new. A few quick notes on Robin the Hood, though. One, to your point, this is not commercial. There is an article in the show notes that refers to it as, quote, coherently incoherent, which I think is a pretty good description. Number two, let's talk again about location. Where the hell was this album recorded? Yeah, and that depends on who you ask, right? Yeah, right I, the- everything I saw, like I saw three or four different versions of this story. So Bradley's wife will claim it was recorded in a crack house. Yeah, I saw that. I saw other mentions that Brad is couch surfing at this time, and so he's recording it at random houses along the way. I also read that the equipment he records on was stolen equipment that was taken during the 92 LA riots. It's unclear if it was by him or by someone else. Of course, any and all of these things could be true to differing degrees. I don't really know. And it is true that sometimes he's the only member of the band on some of these tracks. But the main takeaway for our purposes is that this is now the third piece of recorded output by this band. (laughs) And they still haven't had a traditional recording experience. Right. And one more thing to mention about Robin the Hood is Raleigh Theodore Ugh, We do have to talk about him, don't we? Urban NBR, this September in Louisville, Kentucky, with Bruno Mars. The Killers. Black Keys. Brandy Carlisle. Plus Duran Duran. Billy Strings, the Black Crows, the Avid Brothers, Blondie, and so many more. Bourbon and Beyond, September 14th through 17th in Louisville, Kentucky. All passes on sale now at bourbonandbeyond.com. So recently on the show, we talked about 8675309 and whether or not Jenny was a real person. In the band Tommy Two-Tone, they made that song famous and they kept up this whole charade for decades. Oh, maybe she's real. Maybe she's not. Maybe I dated her. Maybe I didn't. Maybe she's mad. Maybe there's a restraining order. This is like sort of a similar situation. The story on who Raleigh Theodore Sakers is changes depending on who you ask. And for context, he is the voice you hear interspersed throughout Robin the Hood saying some bizarre, off-the-wall, and off-color weird shit. can't even see us. How in the fuck can you do anything about it? We're pure intelligence. You're not. You're a biological product of the cosmological universe. You're molecular matter. I constructed you. Fuck you. Yeah, there, there are a handful of stories about who this guy actually was. Let me just run down them. One, it was all fake and it was a character that Bud would do. Uh, number two, it was all fake and it was Opie Ortiz. Uh, who is a friend of the band and becomes intertwined with the band in a lot of ways. He's the guy actually on the cover of Robin the Hood, if you've seen that album cover. And he created the Sublime logo because he was a tattoo artist. So that Sublime logo on someone's back on the Landmark album, that is his work. Uh, here, here's another version of the story. Sublime's former drummer had a brother who worked in a halfway house where this guy lived, and he recorded him. So... That one might be true. And then there's also a story that it's just like a weird tape that floated around the scene, and they decided to incorporate it into the record. And And Miguel has said some things in the last few years that makes that sound like it might be true. Who knows? It, regardless of which version is true, what is true is that he becomes this cult figure of fascination. Skunk Records even puts out a 32-minute CD of him yelling, and there has been clothing line named event in his honor. I, I think the main takeaway here, though, is that 
including the ramblings of a schizophrenic as the connecting fiber of your first record on a label, that is some true corpse in the funhouse underside of the boardwalk energy. You know, like we've been talking about. This is just yeah. another great example uh, of how Sublime was subversive about where they came from and, and who they were. Uh, do, do you have any theories on, on Rally Theodore Sakers? Not necessarily. I think I buy the halfway house thing. For me, it's it's really sad because, you know, there's a big quicksand of addiction and mental health that's just at the center of the story that makes it just kind of sad. Yeah, it, I, that's a really good point, Murdoch. So, like, this mirrors what we start to see happen with Brad. And I think, in retrospect, it makes it even less listenable. Like, it's not necessarily anything I think. I, and I even read, I forget who it was, but somebody was like, somebody involved in the record was like, you know, that's funny the first or second time you hear it, and then you just have to skip it. Because, like, why do you want to hear this guy yell in between yeah. tracks? So there is this micro thing happening in punk and ska music on the West Coast, but the macro thing starts to happen, too. And there's this guy who spent the early 90s stage managing Lollapalooza who starts to see the intersection of extreme sports and punk rock, and he thinks there might be a way to combine all these things. Uh, you know, for marketing and make something fun. And that guy's name is Kevin Lyman. Oh, my God. I love Warp Tour. I love yeah. it so much. And in 95, he wants to try this thing, and he doesn't have a sponsor yet, and he doesn't have a budget to bring in the massive bands, so he's looking for some bands with some buzz. And the headliners of the first Warp Tour became sublime and no doubt. This is the opening paragraph from a New York Times piece from 2018 on the eve of Warp Tour closing shop, because it, it ends up finally winding down in 18. On the first Warp Tour in 1995, the traveling punk rock extravaganza was so low budget that its founder, Kevin Lyman, had to buy supermarket hot dogs to feed the musicians. One day, the sublime singer Bradley Knowles' Dalmatian urinated on the hot dog buns. That was my favorite moment, recalled Danita Sparks of L7. <laughs> And Lou Dog gets a really bad reputation on that tour. He does bad get, stuff, man. Yeah. They actually get kicked off the event more than once that summer. And this is a quote from Jennifer Finch, a different member of L7, speaking in a different article. Quote, our year was definitely the learning curve year. The make a lot of mistakes year. The sublime completely went off the rails year. That was the first year Sublime were on tour out of Southern California. They were reckless. They brought their dog on tour, and it bit some people. Every day, someone would take a Sharpie and write on the dog's head, don't feed. <laughs> you know, she points out something important, which is Sublime has not really toured outside of their home. When they start to gain momentum, it comes pretty quickly, and so... All of a sudden, they're moving in these different circles and in this much wider world, and they're still behaving like a house party band. This is a quote from Bud about that tour. Basically, our daily regimen was wake up, drink, drink more, play, and then drink a lot more. We'd call people names. Nobody got our sense of humor. And then we brought the dog out and it bit a few skaters, and that was the last straw, end quote. But this tour cements the anticipation and expectation around this band. So as the year starts to wind down, the label starts asking, when are we going to get new music? And this is how we get to Willie Nelson and Pertinella's Country Club. We're, we're finally here. Uh, let's explain how Sublime gets there. Now, remember our friend John Phillips. We mentioned him earlier. He got the guy signed to his uncle's imprint, Gasoline Alley Records. Uh, there's a regime change at Gasoline Alley in late 95, and John is now worried the Sublime is going to get cut out. Okay, so again, just to remind you of their trajectory, they start in 88. 
tapes start floating around in 91. They have a couple of releases in the early 90s. Uh, one, Robin the Hood, comes out in 94. Um, and now they're working on what is going to become known as the self-titled record that everybody knows that's got all the big hits on it, right? But John is worried that about a lot of things around Sublime. He can see the writing on the wall after this warp Tour debacle that they are not in good shape, that there's a lot of drugs, and that Brad specifically is at high risk here. So he writes a letter to MCA record heads and begs them to put Sublime in a real studio and get them out of SoCal. Quote, I was trying to get the band out of Long Beach because there were distractions here. Brad's in legal trouble. He's deep into heroin. Everything about it is bad news, and John is trying to fix it the best he can. They're already recording in Southern California at this point. Right, and these are the David Kane sessions, and he had just come off doing Tony Bennett's like MTV Unplugged record. So to go from that to Sublime is interesting, right? Also, the behavior is probably different at that point in Tony Bennett's career versus Sublime's. But he is able to get some of the big hits out of them. Uh, got What I Got, April 29th, 1992, Miami. Caress me down, do in time. Yes, but overall, the sessions are not going well. So they hatch this plan to get them out of Cali. And, and they convince them to do this in two ways, okay? One, they say you get to pick a producer. So they choose Paul Leary from the Butthole Surfers. We've already mentioned this up top. They had heard the Meat Puppets record that Paul Leary produced, and they loved Butthole Surfers, and they thought the, the Meat Puppets record was amazing. And so that's who they pick. Number two, Butthole Surfers are from Austin, which means... You're going to Austin, and you know what's in Austin, Bird and Alice. It's a complex located in Lake Travis, which is 29 miles west of Austin, and it was a country club. And in 79, Willie Nelson bought it and turned it into a compound. Yeah, like full on. He takes the restaurant and clubhouse and turns it into the state-of-the-art recording studio. He builds a giant cabin. He moves his crew and his family out there and builds a bunch of condos. It's a whole production. Then he got in trouble with the IRS. You guys might remember that in 91, and all of that got seized, and it gets sold off and then bought back eventually by Willie. It's quite entertaining. So this is where Brad, Eric, and Bud are headed to finish making what will become that self-titled record. Remember, we talked about this. These guys don't really record in recording studios. They don't have a have. They've been recording. They've been sneaking in to colleges and recording in crack houses. They they have not been going to Willie Nelson's multi million dollar studio, and so now they're headed to this infamous reclaimed marijuana soaked mecca. But they have to get there, and none of them want to get on a plane because you know drugs. So they rent an <laughs> RV so they can drive 1,300 miles from Long Beach to Austin. This is a quote from Leary talking about when the guys finally show up at the studio. Quote, there's a very steep driveway that leads up to the studio and their long dilapidated RV got stuck on the hill. I went out to meet them and they had all their dogs with them, even though I told them not to bring their dogs. Uh, they weren't going to go anywhere without those dogs. We have already heard how Lou Dog behaves, right? Yeah, right. So bring the Warp Tour chaos into Willie Nelson's house. There's some great pieces in the show notes about this time at Willie's, but let's just say these guys are very under the influence the entire time, and it just keeps getting more intense. This is another Leary quote about trying to corral them. One day they came to me looking all concerned, and I thought there was a problem, and they said, we start recording at noon and we're already really drunk. So I think we need to start earlier in the day. So the next day I got there early and I show up and they have pictures of margaritas in hand and they are already wasted. 
It didn't matter what time you started, those guys were going to be drunk. You want to hear a list of things they did to Pater Malas? You ready? Yeah. Um, accidentally started a fire in the pool or sauna area, depending on how you heard the story. <laughs> Lou Dog scratched up all the studio floors. Not good. Borrowed a white Chevy Suburban and promptly crashed it. Wrecked the condo. Had to be moved three times. Oh, my God. On an afternoon spent golfing, Brad and buddies flipped a golf cart. By the way, done it. Permanently banned <laughs> from the golf course in my hometown. Brad scribbled an unfortunate mustache on a 1984 poster for Willie's 4th of July pick. Oh, my God. And, quote, I came in and Brad had taken a Sharpie and drawn a Hitler mustache on Willie. I lost it. It almost came to an end right then and there. But Miguel calmed me down and said he would fix it. Miguel swears Brad was just trying to do Charlie Chaplin facial hair, right? <laughs> Quote, they showed up to Peter Nellis with enough heroin to last for the entire duration, and it was gone in less than a week. So they sent someone back to California, and they... He bought so much that the dealer threw in an eight ball. That's when you know your drug dealer really loves you. That's when you know you have a real problem. Yeah, that's true. We see what happens after this time at Willie's. I'll read part of this from the Austin Chronicle retrospective. This is in the show notes if you want to read it because it's, it's good and thorough. But this part, I think, captures what happens next. A couple weeks into the second set of sessions, Leary had had enough. Brad needed help, and I wasn't going to watch him die in the studio in front of my eyes, so I pulled the plug. Brad came out of the bathroom. I can't even tell this story because it's so awful, but he wanted to show me where he was shooting up, and that freaked me out. I said, it's over, and he got mad, and he fired me. And now the article goes on to say, given the butthole surfer's wild and woolly history, which I have alluded to, because it's not like... Not like that dude's on the straight and narrow. Leary maintained an acute knowledge of opiate addiction. So Phillips took it seriously when he balked. He told... So then John Phillips, the A&R guy who we've talked about, who manages them and it's his, sent them down to Texas, he tells Brad he's got to come home. And Brad fires him on the spot. So Brad's now fired everybody. The following day, Brad told Leary that he understood... Miguel got him on a plane, allegedly attributing the singer's pronounced track marks to an injury incurred from bees. And according to Phillips, Brad entered treatment upon return and seemed focused on staying off of hard drugs. But if you know anything about Sublime, you know that on May 25th, 1996, Bud will find Brad dead in a motel room in San Francisco. It's just two months after they left those Austin recording sessions. He's 28. He's got a new wife and a kid. And he's got a band with a new record that wasn't quite finished. Do you know anything about what MCA does after this? They certainly make some money selling Sublime records. They do, but at first they're worried about how that's going to look. This is from the Ringer retrospective, which is also in the show notes. They decide to shelve it. Like they, they're, they're not even going to put it out because they've sunk so much money into this band. So the way the story goes, they're paying for Brad's rehab on and off at certain points too. So he's got advances. He's got rehab bills. There's tour support. There's recording costs. They have sunk so much money into the ship and they feel like it's going to be a really bad look to put out this record knowing that Brad died. Now, several things that I've read say that at this point, you know, he, they were a big deal in California, but the rest of the country, right around this same time, is when the keyboard player from the Smashing Pumpkins dies. And 
I read multiple reports that said that was a much bigger story at the time. People were talking about that story and not necessarily about this guy from this ska band in California. Also, at this point, there is a, a heavy cost in producing the physical CD. So they just decide, I don't think we're going to do this. This is Miguel talking. The label was dissolving and we owed so much money. They didn't hear the hit. They listened to the self-titled and were like, hmm, how much is this going to cost us? It was still the era where burning CDs was prohibitively expensive. And so according to Miguel, less than five copies existed of the unreleased record. So they get five copies of this record that they've made. Miguel has one of them. And he takes it to K-Rock and puts it in the hands of a DJ who went by the name Jed the Fish. And much like what happened years before with Date Rape, it is K-Rock that will break Sublime by playing What I Got. And it quickly becomes the most popular song on the station. And that causes MCA to reconsider and to go ahead and to print the record. But it takes a long time for this record to chart. It comes out in 96, but if you ask most people, they're going to tell you it came out in 97 because that's when you yeah. that's when it was everywhere. Was the middle of 97, a year after it was released. One more thing about this record, it's a weird listen once you have learned the story about it and behind it and about this recording session at Willie Nelson's because one thing that Paul Leary says a lot is that Brad was in such bad shape that he didn't have lyrics, really. And so in, in the past recordings, all the guys from Sublime say Brad would have lyrics. He would write without music. Like, he would write lyrics, and then they would create music. Well, they're, like, headed to the recording studio from California, and they're talking, and he's like, yeah, I don't really have lyrics. We're just going to have to get in the studio and figure it out. And Paul also says that there were times where they would play for 12 minutes, and he would take that, send them to the golf course, and cut it down to three minutes. And if you know that and you go back and listen to the self-titled record, you can hear it. And you can hear it in a lot of different ways. One way you can hear it is that the lyrics are almost stream of consciousness, Brad talking about the band and his friends. So now that you've heard this episode, go listen to stuff like Garden Grove. And it is just him saying stuff about the dog and about the van and about hanging out like it's very much does not sound like they were lyrics that were written on purpose it's just crazy because it works but it shouldn't work at all yeah it's a it's a crazy story uh jeff was not wrong there's a (laughs) there's a lot to talk about if you have a question for us if you have something you want us to look into or research it's we're the story guys at gmail.com. Make sure you've got, I think, just a couple more days if you want to get in the running for those tickets to Bourbon and Beyond Music Festival. Uh, we will be sending someone very soon because that's sneaking up on us in the middle of September in our hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. We would love for you to come see it and rock out to bands like The Killers, Duran Duran, and Bruno Mars. All the details are in the show notes. Uh, follow us on Instagram, backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. It's we're the story guys on Facebook. And please, if you got a few pennies to spare and you want to get extra content from the two of us, you can do that at patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. 
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.